and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith, and thank you for listening. David is not here. He is currently at, quote-unquote, Sundance, uh, which is to say he is inundating himself with Sundance movies there at his house uh, and is uh, is uh, covering it for Battleship Pretension. As of right now, I see a couple of, uh, of reviews. He reviewed the movie Censor and another one called Coda. So you can find those at battleshippretension.com. And he and last week we did do a, a preview of Sundance. Um, but yeah, so you can follow uh, his coverage for the next uh, week or two. Um, and then I did also want to talk about the book, the 101 best movies of the 2010s. Uh, we are, I know we keep saying this, we are right on the cusp. We are doing the final proof and then we can order them and uh, order the, the books and we will probably have them next week. So uh, if you want to pre-order, you can go to battleshipretention.com and on the left side of the page, you will see uh, the cover of the book. Uh, just click on that and that will take you where you need to go. Uh, it is $14.99 plus shipping. Uh, and we, at the moment, we're only uh, shipping within the United States, but I am looking into uh, being able to ship elsewhere. And actually, I'm looking into uh, the ebook option as well. Um, for those that don't know, the the book is features uh, David and myself and Scott and various other contributors writing about the listener generated uh, uh, final tally of the 101 best movies of the 2010s. One of those contributors is with us today. It's our old friend Jason Eakin. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing great. How's it going? I'm doing okay, if it's any business of yours. Um, I, I but, like to uh, think it is. So it seems like David is not at Sundance so much as he is in Sundance. Exactly. And I like to think yeah. it's in him a little bit okay. as well. Um, but It's uh, going to take a few weeks for it to get out of him. <laughs> it's going to claw its way out like an alien. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, like Sundance attached itself to his face. Um, So, uh, yeah, I do briefly want to want to talk um, because it is it is imminent. I know that, uh, again, I feel really bad when we talk about the book like, hey, it's it's coming soon. It's coming soon. We are really in the final stretch at this point. Uh, I've seen the final design. People can see the cover. I I I love what our designer did. His name is uh, Ananya. We'll talk more about him when the book is actually available. Um, He came up with some great ideas. And, uh, and I think uh, the, the book, in, it, certainly from a design standpoint, I'm tremendously proud of. But having read through everything, I, I think people are going to really enjoy reading it. Certainly, depending on who's writing, very different vibes. You know, like David, like, essentially we gave ourselves a very loose word count, uh, <laughs> which is say like, hey, if you could keep it to 800, uh, go ahead. David to his credit, kept it to 800. I regularly went over and our good friend Jason just didn't even pay attention. Like you're, there's a couple other people that, that, that go up there, but like you, cause I think you only did four, right? You only talk about four Correct. movies. Okay. Yeah. But see, I wrote about 26. You wrote about four page count about the same, I'd say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, now, now we don't want to, it, it, it should, it should sadden. I won't say what I wrote about. We'll say okay. that for people to discover, but with all four, I, I'd say I heavily edited 
them. I heavily edited the version I sent to you. That is there astonishing were, and infuriating. <laughs> I'll say all of them were roughly a page or two longer. And oddly, they got longer as I went along, which I don't know. I don't know how that's possible. Sure. But they did. And I, I, I had a lot of anxiety about it. Just because you know, I don't like to limit myself or uh, or squelch my voice, so I didn't want to cut in. I didn't want to cut a word. Not a single word. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really something. <laughs> and knowing that you uh, had restrained yourself is really, uh, boy, it's. Uh, I'm tired Shocking. already. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real disappointment. I'll tell you that. I did want to tell a quick a quick story. It's not my story to tell, but as I was talking with the designer, um, there is a design element within the book, and that that is sort of unique to to what we're doing. And the designer said, "Well, in order to figure out what we were going to do, I had an intern watch all one hundred and one movies in the book." Oh and goodness. and my first thought was like, holy shit! But then the designer said, "He goes, yeah." He goes, "I was I, I was jealous. I was envious of this intern getting to watch 101 great movies." He's like, "I haven't seen them all." And incidentally, I Tyler, I also have not seen them all. And so uh, this intern got like a complete film education from the last 10 years, and uh, that's astonishing to me. That's really incredible. And yeah. now it's an intern. So is, is, you know, is that an unpaid intern? Maybe I didn't ask. Um, okay. Probably best not to ask. Exactly. Yes. If you got paid to watch 101 movies, That's I mean, that would be several weeks of work. Yeah. And even, even if, like, let's, let's go ahead and say that every movie in this book absolutely deserves to be in there. It deserves a place on the list. So like, these are truly the 101 best movies of the thousands of movies released in the 2010s. So like, these are gr great films. And yet, undoubtedly, I think by the time the intern was done there, her, her mind must've just been complete mush. Um, yeah. How could it not be? And of course, I want to know the one that she thought, like, what is wrong with these people? What I know. What are they thinking? You know, I mean, so you, know. you, you got to have her on the podcast to say, like, this sort of up or down on, on all 101. When I told David this, he goes, I want so badly to have her on the show to talk about this very strange experience. Um, and uh, and I don't know if we can do that because I think that would spoil what is in the book and we're trying to, we're, uh, what's included on the list. I guess so. Maybe we'll give it some time. Let, you know, everyone who's going to buy it, obviously is going to buy it within the first couple of days of publication, sure. I would assume. Um, but read uh, it like a Harry Potter book, cover to just cover. Abs it. Absolutely. I am curious to know how people will read it. I do. I hope that people read it from just beginning to end. Um, but I do think it's, it's, it's possible people might jump around and only read about the movies that they've seen, which is understandable. I would say. Sure. And then, you know, maybe they, they hit upon a, a writer or two that they like and, and maybe yeah. they see, oh, okay, what else did they write about? Yeah. So uh, I definitely, um, you know, it's, and I know that for myself, and I don't know if it's the case with you, um, I, in writing about these, I, I had a hard time writing about the films just purely on their own, like given the context of the book, I feel like I, 
without even trying, wound up talking about, yes, the film, but also how it fit into or reflected the time in which it was made. Certainly, any movie that I talked about in the top 10, uh, it's like, why is this considered one of the best? Is it is it like a, a quintessential 2010s movie in that regard? Like, did you find yourself thinking about that at all? Well, I, the way I thought about it was, I have to assume, or I just decided I was going to assume that people knew the plot, people knew the sure. movements, and that I just didn't want to get mired in reviewing it. You know, this is not a yeah. it's not a review; it's an essay about it. And so I tried to sort of find those few components that really spoke to me, um, which could have been the with some of them certainly was the context surrounding the film and tried to more talk about that and let that sort of stand sort of as a piece about the movie rather than a review of the movie. Yeah, I definitely tried to, because I, I tend to, for the most part, adhere to a pretty specific structure uh, or format when I write a review. And on one hand, it was a little bit intimidating to throw that out but after a while again i wrote 26 of these things after a while it became kind of liberating and just being like i'm going to talk about these however each one strikes me uh in the moment and that was kind of fun yeah but, uh, yeah exactly and i i you know i i felt i i can't cannot imagine doing 26 of them it felt like so much effort to really sit and think about yeah, uh, just sort of, you know, revisiting the movies and just sort of kind of letting them settle for a few days and stuff like that. I think that's that's the luxury I had, which is probably why I ended up writing quite a bit. Um, but I did. I want you to know I, I felt horrible doing it. I felt I felt horrible <laughs> sending these these gigantic things. And I was sort of saying, you know, if you if you have to cut my child in half, you know, you can do it. Sure. I won't forgive you, but I'll understand. Um, you're you're like Alec Guinness at the end of uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. You send it in and just said, "What have I done?" <laughs> uh, and then you blew the bridge up yourself. Um, that's right. Yeah, no, it was, and that's actually one of the things you know I I enjoyed. I'm I'm very familiar with your writing style and have been for a long time, uh, and so I, I enjoyed that you wrote them the way the way only you could have uh but specifically it is interesting to go through and read these and i think i genuinely think that by the end people without even looking will be able to tell who wrote what um yeah, yeah. because certainly i mean like david and i wrote uh the most we, between us we wrote about 51 um and then scott and then the rest are split between like Luis and Josh and Sarah and Jim and you and all that right. sort of thing. But, but um, Scott far and away, other than you and David, Scott wrote far and away the most. Yes. Oh, no question about it. So I think that obviously you'll, you'll probably get our voices more than, than others, but I, you know, it's one of the things, you know, we make fun of your, of your, uh, hedonistic self-indulgence. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> But uh, it's something that I've always appreciated because I do think that you have a very specific voice and I don't think you you held back, which I appreciated. Um, I was very glad no. that I, I was very glad that every writer made their articles their own and didn't like try to fit into like an imagined aesthetic. Like every every movie covered will have a, a unique bent to it as far as the way it's written. That's so. very exciting. Yeah, I will tell you, you know, I, I probably banked on the fact that 
this is not my project to edit. So, you know, yeah. if, if you want to edit it, that's your job. I'm writing the piece I want to write and yeah. I'll, I'll do a little bit for you. I did. I really did cut them all down. Stripped to the bone. <laughs> no. Oh, there were, there were whole things where I'm like, okay, well, if they come back to me, I can sure. definitely lose that three paragraphs at the beginning. Um, yeah. But you didn't. And that is, you know, to the no. book's credit, I have to assume. No, I think we, I do think that we, we definitely tried to like give every author like the, the freedom to just write what they wanted to write and edit it essentially for, from a grammar standpoint, from like a clarity standpoint, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, like in the editing process and like it was me, David, and then uh, Julie Sesnovich, who is a very, very thorough editor, I'll say that. Um, between the three of us, like we, we tried to make this as, as tight as possible while still retaining the, the, again, the voice of the individual authors. So, um, anyway, I realized that this was just one long advertisement, but. uh, Well, let me, let me say one more thing before we finish the advertisement. Okay. Just as someone who's gotten to hear about this a little bit, just because I've, I've, I've been talking with you about it and, and being involved with four of them, you know, I just feel like I feel so blessed to have been a part of it. I, I think it is such a special book and such a special project and really it is kind of unlike anything, even just the, the scope of it is so interesting. The way the list was generated is so interesting and is so specific to BP. And so I, I don't know, I just feel like this is such a, a, a once in a, once in a decade, I guess, uh, opportunity. So I was really thrilled to be a part of it and I, I really can't wait to read it. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, it's interesting that you mention it in that regard, because that is something that uh, in the, in the uh, acknowledgements, but also in the, in the opening chapter, I tried to talk about is that, you know, Battleship Pretension, obviously it's a podcast, it's a website, we have our contributors and that sort of thing, but uh, it is also, albeit small, but it is a community. And like, I like the idea that this list was not generated by the contributors. It was generated by the listeners and the readers. So they do have a sense of ownership here. Uh, and it wasn't just written by me and David, but also by Scott and various other contributors. So that it really, my my hope is that the people, whether they were one of the writers or they, or they buy the book that they feel like this is something we all did together, you know? So um, the difference of course, being that uh, some people have to pay for it, whereas you are going to get your own copy. Um, Sweet. So at a, at 10% off. So, oh, uh, gosh, I might buy two. <laughs> exactly. Christmas is coming. Um, so, uh, okay. <clears throat> I will, uh, I will go ahead and, and yeah, so uh, hopefully uh, nobody was put off by that advertisement. Hopefully it only gets you excited for the book because genuinely uh, I'm very proud to be a part of it as well and, uh, and very excited um, that uh, it's going to be uh, going to be in my hands soon because this is something we've been working on for a while. Uh, but okay, enough of that. Well, that not really. We're just going to pivot from one list to another. Uh, so a few years ago, um, David was off doing some, uh, bullshittery and, uh, Scott was on the show and I asked him like, Hey, what are your 10 favorite movies of all time? It's, it's such an, you know, it's such a a common question, but it is, it's fun to, 
to talk about that. And so I thought, let's have Jason on and talk about his favorite movies of all time. But as tends to happen when you and I uh, talk and have an idea, uh, it it turned into it is going it is still going to be that, but it's not merely going to be just a, a rundown of the movies, what they're about, because there's a good chance that that the, the the listeners already know what these movies are about. They maybe they've seen them, yeah. but you know, in a way, we're getting to sort of not the not the essence of what a top ten is, but often what it winds up being. Maybe by accident, um, which is like, what does what the way that I'm approaching it, but it can be more than this is like, what does this top 10 say about you and yeah. how has it and how has your top 10 changed over the years and, and stuff like that? So um, so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about your top 10 and in doing so talking about your emotional faults, your psychological peccadilloes, that sort of yeah. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. What I think we should do, let's talk about the movies starting now. Yeah. Let's not use any of the titles, no character names, and then we'll let people guess what those 10 movies were. Okay. So here we go. I love the scene. I love the scene where the guy with love and hate tattooed on his knuckles, (laughs) no spoilers. <laughs> so, so why don't we let's just sort of like get the cat out of the bag and let's do it i'll i'll run down my my top 10 now this is this is the last time i've made my top 10 um it's as of 2015 so now uh, th- you know there's a chance that some of this would be different in order sure. for me to change it i my process would be i would have to watch all of these again and then start maybe watching some of the movies that um, could could be the replacement. So that's kind of what how, how I would do it. Now I seem to recall, uh, you know, back before uh, the world went to shit, uh, you and I uh, had a, a a weekly Denny's or Mel's Diner meeting, and I seem to recall many years ago at a Denny's. I think you had your little notebook handy, and we just started just kind of working on your top 10 in the moment. I don't know if that was the 2015 one or if that was just a jumping off point, but I have a very specific memory of that. Yes. Now you're, it's, it's a mostly correct memory as I recall. Okay. Um, I believe that was, and I think one of those, I want to say one of those times was also at Coral Cafe. I think we found ourselves in Burbank there, just the two of us. I believe that was the sight and sound list the last time it was done. I oh, so that would be 2012, I guess. Yeah. So I think okay. we were, so because I ended up with a, an, an A team and a B team for, for my sight and sound list. Yes, that's uh, right. But, but yeah, I, probably around that time I was, because let's see. Yeah. You, you know what? I think you're right. We probably did that list and this list because I remember wanting 30 films for my 30th birthday, which was 2013. Right. Um, and so I was starting to formulate that. And so we would just sort of turn all those over and yeah. Okay. All right. So okay. it's nice to know that I'm not completely crazy that there's also, no. it's like, yeah, I got together with one of my friends and we made a list of movies we like. What a weird, <laughs> what, that couldn't possibly have happened. Um I also remember we did a fantasy casting of Jurassic Park, which I think I wound up turning into an actual fantasy casting available on Battleship Pretension. Pretty, yeah, I think you did. Um, okay, so here, here we go. We'll just run down 10, number 10 to 1. Number 10, Network. Okay. Number 9, Wild Strawberries. Number 8, Metropolis. 
Number seven, the Royal Tenenbaums. Number six, Citizen Kane. Number five, the Third Man. Number four, the Lord of the Rings. That's Lord of the Rings Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King. I'll allow it. Uh, number three, the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Okay. Number two, Night of the Hunter. And number one, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Despite my love of Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, just for whatever reason, as you started to say it, I thought the words David Gale were going to be in there, like instinctively. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, what? I've had a, it's the end of a long day, <laughs> but it, like my mind didn't go where it obviously was going to go. Instead, it went to the most opposite you could ever think. Cause that is a, I do believe I watched that movie with you uh, yeah. for the first yeah. time. And it is, it is truly uh, awful. Yeah, I mean that is that's got to be up there with um, best cast, worst movie. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Spacey, Laura Linney, Kate Blanchett, or sorry, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet like, yeah, I mean that's that is a ridiculous cast. And I feel like there are others beyond that, but we we there, look we didn't come here there. we didn't come here to talk about Life of David Gale. Right. <laughs> Obviously, that's in the eleven to twenty uh, category. We're talking about your just, top ten uh, here. Just yeah. can't quite sneak in. Maybe yeah. maybe on the rewatch it'll get in. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so so where shall we begin? Well, I, I've got somewhere to begin un- unless you would like to jump in. Well, it's. Uh, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine to to throw to you because uh, you know what what I what I would appreciate actually real quick. Um, let me pull up my uh, my my notepad here. Uh, can you actually say it again? Because I just sure. want to make sure everyone knows uh, what we're dealing with. So, and I'm going to write it down. Sure. Okay. Number ten network. Okay. Number number nine wild strawberries. Strawberries. Eight metropolis. Seven, the Royal Tenenbaums. Six, Citizen Kane. Five, the Third Man. Four, Lord of the Rings. Three, the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. <laughs> Did it happen again? Uh, I was expecting you to do, but that's fine. Yeah. Two, Night of the Hunter. One, Magnolia. Okay. Now, uh, I will say that uh, there is, you know, stop copying me. There's a lot of uh, uh, overlap with my own, my own really? top 10. Really? Give me the overlap. Give me the overlap. Okay. So, and actually now that I look at it, I realize that, uh, that some of these were in my top 10, but they're not anymore. Right now, I think they're, the only overlap is uh, Citizen Kane and Night of the Hunter. But, um, but yeah, Network is my number 12 now that I'm looking at that. And Third Man okay. is my number 17. So... Uh, but yeah, but there was uh, a time you're, you're off by 12 on the third man. I'd say. You know what? If the last time I, the last time I made my top hundred was in 2019 and the third man is always heavily in contention depending on when I last saw it. Um, and, uh, and I think if I were to make, if I were to remake my list, uh, which I will be doing probably soon, uh, I imagine third man might not crack the top 10, but it'll definitely be up there. Yeah. Now I just, I just made the dumb joke of you're off by 12, but, um, one one thing about top 10 lists, of course, is that they're incredibly personal. They are. And so, you know, it, it's sort of like there's sort of I'm a big football fan. And so there's always a debate who's the best this or that of all time. And 
it's sort of like once you kind of reach greatness, yeah, which is even less definable or, or, or able to be nailed down in, in art. But once you reach a level of greatness, beyond that, it, it is really all personal. And it's really all what strikes you, what what means something because of your specific makeup. So, um, yeah, so I, I obviously don't actually have a problem with someone not having the third man in their top ten. Yeah, it's I agree with you. Like if you if you make a list of like the your 10 favorite movies of the year or decade or whatever it is, like the the further you get out there, the more generalized you're speaking. I do think that after a certain point, it's like, yes, like do I personally think that Nashville is the best movie ever made? No. Because I, I I don't even necessarily feel qualified to make that distinction, but I definitely know that it just resonates with me the most uh, of any movie ever made. And even that could, could change depending on who I am and, and who I become. Um, sure. But, uh, but yeah, so you mentioned the idea of it being personal and, and that sort of thing. So I was curious to know, where do you, where do we go from here as far as your own, your own list from a, from a talking point standpoint? Well, I, I think the thing that, and especially I'm, I'm not going to go through all of these, but as I go into like my top 30, yeah. um, but, but I'll just call out a few that'll, that'll help us sort of frame this first part. So if you look at Magnolia, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, Lord of the Rings, and metropolis and i mm -hmm. i would i would almost put tenenbaums in there just because it's such a large ensemble but there there is this sense of i i, I like big movies i like I, I i love a big swing for the fences yeah i have never been um someone who's like oh yeah that movie was a little too ambitious i've that that has never ever been a problem for me whether it's movies or TV shows or, or yeah. books or anything like that. Um, I also don't, I, I, I couldn't care less of, oh, but I thought I could, I thought I could feel the filmmaker too much. To me, that that's not a negative. I'm yeah. looking for a movie with, with great individual components, including writing and, and directing. But, but so those, that, that group is kind of, those are kind of the epics. I guess, or the, or the sort of large, huge canvas movies. I mean, Citizen Kane is covering, uh, you know, a whole life and yet somehow it, it feels so much more intimate. And I guess the, the scope doesn't quite feel as big as some of those others. I mean, Wild well, Strawberries does the same. So it's like, uh, that's- And I would say that Network has a grand quality to it, a grandiose quality to it. Like, yes, yeah. it's a handful of characters, but think of how big it is. Uh, you know, it's not exactly Lord of the Rings, but it's trying to be uh, yeah. with some of those monologues. Um, so, yeah, it's- but when so I like, as, So Magnolia has, you know, frogs falling. Yeah. You know, in this big sequence, Colonel Blimp has these wars. Lord of the Rings obviously has many battles. Metropolis has these just massive, huge scale sets and, you know, the flooding of these, that's not, I don't think, factory, but wherever the, the, the workers are, like, you know, it's just got these sort of giant set pieces, I suppose you could call them. And there's um, even sort of an Odyssey quality to Night of the Hunter. Um, oh, very much. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, look, it's interesting. Um, 
you know, I, I, I want to be careful not to turn this into like a psycho uh, analysis. What I will say is many years ago, um, we had Pete Holmes on the show and he was talking about some of his favorite films. And just as he was saying what they were, I remember thinking, oh, there's a common theme here of duality. Like it would appear that Pete is a big fan of duality. And I mentioned it on the show and he goes, oh, yeah, I guess so. I hadn't thought of that. Um and so it, it is interesting to, you know, to, to look at commonalities because looking at this, uh, I'm not going to say this is a common denominator with all of your movies, but I definitely think, you know, you're talking about like gr- greatness, like the, these big uh-huh. movies. I would also say that at the, at the core of a lot of these movies is the idea of a great man. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Blimp, Kane, Tenenbaums. I'd say Wild Story, even Network. Somebody like the idea of of Howard Beale being like this mad prophet. Um, It's a legacy. Yeah. And and to a certain extent, like when you think of the way Harry Lyme is talked about in The Third Man, not that he's this great man, but like he's talked, he's built up in the film. Yeah. and, and and yeah, like not necessarily Metropolis, and obviously Magnolia. Well, Magnolia is Metropolis. Sort of yeah, like I guess that's whole thing. Jason Robards and Magnolia. You've got yeah. that. There, and and then even in Lord of the Rings, I think Frodo by the end of it, the idea of sort of what this um, what this adventure cost him in in a way. So even that, it's sort of like kind of his life feels over at the end of it. Many other people's life feels like it's going to go on. Yeah. This kind of feels like this has, you know, this is, I I don't know if I really think, sorry, I'm just jumping into one of them. That's fine. You know, I don't know if I really think that that adventure defined Gandalf or defined even Sam um in ter- you know i think sam is now he's going on he's gonna have a very fulfilling life with his family that really yeah. matters to him um you know but that adventure really is going to be the, the the defining moment for for frodo um but and you do also have aragorn who has been avoiding greatness the the, the his inherent greatness his whole life and then stepping yeah. up when it is required of him and, and literally becoming the king uh, yeah. of, of uh, humans and that sort of thing. So it is interesting. Do you feel like having now said that, I don't mean to say, uh, do you consider yourself a great man or anything like that? But do you feel the, the concept of, and yes, in this case, I'm talking about men, but it could be, it could just easily be like these Titanic, like women as well, just like these central figures that have just a a bigness to them, whether it be their ideas or uh, narratively a build up to them. Do you feel like that now? Like now that I've said that, do you feel like that is something that, whether it be with these ten or movies in general, that you just find yourself drawn to, like these stories of like singular people who shape their time in a way? Hmm. I'm not sure if I would say about, you know, shapes their time because I think or their world or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Yeah. But it's sort of their, their, their small world. I think, you know, what's kind of, what's interesting about something like Royal Tenenbaums or wild strawberries, these aren't, 
you know, um, like world renowned figures, whereas Kane certainly is much, sure. much more public figure. But those are really sort of sort of more a, a little bit reflective in terms of what was my life about and was my life mm. about something that I wanted it to be about or did my life maybe get away from me a little bit? Um, you know, back to Jason Robards and Magnolia, the yeah. regret, you know, and sort of being at the end and looking back and, um, and sort of, and for Royal trying to go like, okay, if I'm, I think I'm at the moment where if I don't get this family back, I don't know what my life's been. And I don't know what my life means if, if I couldn't even, you know, be, be the father I wanted to be or be the man I wanted to be. Um, and so sort of <laughs> setting up a ridiculous plot in which to try to become that. And when you think of what he wants on his tombstone at the end, <laughs> you know, it's, it is this it's, it's family oriented that he saved his family from a sinking battleship or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's over the top, but it does speak to not merely like a very specific kind of significance, you know, um, that because it's hard to say he saved his, his family from feelings of betrayal. Like, well, that's obviously that's right. much more understandable and, and relatable, but that's not what he wants. He wants to right. be something that he, someone who still is defined by his family, but there's still this other greatness aspect to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now what's interesting is, you know, I, I didn't set out to have a movie by both Paul Thomas Anderson and, and Wes Anderson in here. Um, it, it just sort of worked out that way. And uh, someone who used to be in my top 10, you know, I, I think I think there was a time when I kind of felt like, you know, I'm certainly a, a filmmaker oriented person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously, a lot of the listeners are as well. We're, we're movie geeks. We love our filmmakers. But, um, you know, for a while, just sort of going back to the notion of top tens, I think I felt um, compelled or almost like I I was required. You know, I tried to like, okay, well, I got to have a Tarantino in there because he's one of the filmmakers of my generation or, or, or the one, you know, who was emerging when I started loving, coming to love movies. Or I, I, should I have a Coen Brothers? Should I try to sneak a Coen Brothers in sure. there? Or, you know, something like that. Same with Scorsese. Um you know, and, and so for a while, Pulp Fiction was was not only on the list, but was really high. And I think, you know, a trap I, I know I certainly fell into was like, no, I've got to I've got to put the right. It was almost like more curated than, I guess, instinctive. And so I yes. try to be a little a little bit more instinctive or, you know, for a while, the Lord of the Rings wasn't in there and Tenenbaums wasn't in there because I felt like. Oh gosh, that's that's not even ten years old, and and yeah. you know I, I I don't know maybe that just feels a little too recent, and so you hold off, and then you just keep loving these movies, and they're the ones that that you end up thinking about and and returning to. I mean, it, uh, you know, I, every, everybody has like those movies that they want to watch when they feel sick or kind of their comfort movies. Oh yeah, like. I, I I would say Royal Tenenbaums is like a comfort movie for me. Um, Lord of the Rings is for me a hundred percent. Like if I'm sick, I want to, I I want, yeah, I want to like enter into this world and spend 14 hours there, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but yes, yeah, so, so this, I, I, I'm tr- I've, I've tried to be a little bit more instinctive. Um, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm questioning. So the, the, let me just see. Uh, the two that have been on my list the longest out of these 10 are, are Citizen Kane and, and Network. And so sort of every time I make the list, I kind of have to do, do a sort of gut check of, yeah. okay, is this, is this still, is, is this me trying to, trying to cling to my, to my past? And, and at the same time, am I for some reason now rejecting a movie? Cause I liked it when I was 15 or 20, you know, when I was 15 and watched network, it's safe to say I didn't appreciate it on, you know, for, for the full weight of its, of its excellence. Um, I think we talked about this, you know, there was, I think the first few times I watched network, it, I didn't laugh. Yeah. You know, I was just like, Oh, it's the, it's this movie. It's this, you know, Howard Beale, he's, he's mad as hell. And it's sort of like that. You sort of gravitate toward that anger. And then all of a sudden, you watch it and you're a little bit older and you hear, uh, what is it? The black Panthers going, man, give her the fucking overhead. (laughs) You're like, hold on. I think I've, I think I've misread this movie every time I've seen it. And you just get how funny it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I do think that, you know, looking at my own top 10, which maybe we'll bring in later, but like, I mean, listeners know, I adore Citizen Kane and, you know, the the moment I saw it, it became like my favorite movie. And as I grew older, it dropped to a shameful number two. Um, <laughs> but uh, so obviously I had to have this tattoo removed, the whole thing anyway. Right. Um, but uh, you got to get your keep it going tattoo. <laughs> exactly. I do have I do have some Nashville related tattoo ideas. Yes. Um, but. You know that I was like 14 when I saw Citizen Kane, and I I still love it. I mean, I watch it regularly because I, I incorporate it into pretty much every class I teach if I can. Um, and every t- and based on who I am as a person, I I mean, I think I talked about this last year. I wrote an article about it for more than one lesson that like I'd seen Citizen Kane so many times, and yet watching it most recently, I think because I had been married for a while, I came to realize like the selfishness of Charles Foster Kane. And of course we all know that there's a selfishness to him, but this idea, it's like love on your own terms. What does that actually mean? Like, what is he, what does it mean to like give out of abundance when you're not really sacrificing anything, but it sure looks like it. What does that look like? How do I do that? That's, that's certainly not any question. I, I wasn't thinking about that when I was 14. So why did I love it? It's like, well, because it was novel to me. Yeah. It was so new and so it just, it was alive, that movie. Like it just pulsed with energy and I'd never seen anything like that. And I think that's a perfectly fine reason to love a movie at that age. And then thankfully it's a film that as I get old, uh, as I get older, um, you come to realize like the novelty has worn off. But thankfully, there's still a lot there. Undoubtedly, if you go back to like my my top hundred that I made in 2001, there's a lot of novelty on that. That mm-hmm. probably upon two or three more viewings, especially as you get older, you're like, yeah, that's fine. It's it, there's not much there there, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, not to bash those movies, but no. 
you know, and certainly like I make my top hundred every, every few years. And there's probably a good 40 movies that have stayed on there from the very, from the very first list, but for so, for such different reasons for me at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I know that you have loved Magnolia for so, for so long. Um, do you feel like when you watch it now, cause that's a 99 movie and I don't know if that's when you watched it, but do you feel like your, your love for it now is not better and not even necessarily deeper, but it just, it's, it's more multifaceted than when you first saw it. Definitely. And, and, you know, especially as, um, as, as a younger, as a younger person, there was this sense that, um, kind of that, that a certain movie has to, has to say everything, um, yeah. has to be, you know, my, my favorite movie has to, has to say as much as a, a, a person can be able to, you know, it has to sum me up somehow. Yeah. Um, and, and then you kind of let go of that and you don't put the pressure on the movie to say everything that could ever be said about life or about anything. And you kind of, so, so you actually kind of release the movie from having to be everything, even if it's your number one movie. But, you know, I, I do think it, it does have to do with the specific probably way that that movie came into my life that has, that's made it last, which was, you know, I, I was 16 and 99 and didn't see it in the theater. Um, so I saw the double cassette and, yeah. and watching it was, was just sort of like, I'm pretty sure I rented it from a grocery store. Oh, grocery I was just thinking—I was just thinking about the yeah. that the other day, the grocery store video section, and how big of a role that played in my life. Well, and it was wonderful because you know, whereas my you know larger video store accounts were tied to my parents, and so there were ratings limits. Sure. Anybody with a driver's license could rent movies from the from the grocery store. And so that was, you know, that, that was sort of mine. And, and they, you know, they, they didn't know what the hell they were getting. They just sort of, Oh, what's, what's new on video. Let's grab it. Let's, yeah. let's put it out. And as it happens, no one else in the grocery store was looking to rent a three hour, nine minute double cassette movie that wasn't Titanic. Uh, sure. So, so the copy was right there for the taken. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so I, so I watched it in that way and, really was kind of confounded by it mm -hmm. and it was you know the, the, there were just so many things that i was just like it it was so it grabbed me so strongly but i also didn't really understand it i didn't quite couldn't quite figure out what i was seeing and um and so then it became a movie that i kind of revisited and and it just sort of stuck in my head that way um and I, you know, I think the, the, the older I got, <clears throat> and I mean, it, it did become my, my favorite movie probably sometime in college, I guess. Um, but something just clicked over and it just became like, Ooh, this is, you know, this, this just speaks to me. at such a, at such a deep level. I mean, there's something so profound, you know, a, a big thing with, with some of these movies is like the final shot. Yeah. Definitely the third man final shot um i think and, network yeah. yeah yeah oh no i'd say that's definitely true looking at this um and, and night of night of the hunter um mm -hmm. 
but certainly Magnolia, that that final shot really just, I mean, it, the only way to say it is like, it just sort of pierces me. It just, to see somebody so broken have this opportunity at redemption, it sort of is like, that. well, that kind of does say everything I want a movie to say. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't speak to every single facet of life, but that's about, that's that's what I want a movie to say, and and it just I mean I've seen it in in the theaters several times around L.A., you know, and there's it's it's funny I often forget sometimes I forget about the frogs sometimes I forget that they break into Wise Up part of the way into the movie, yeah. and so there there are so many different things going on in the movie that you can focus on, you know, in recent watches I'm like wow. I understand how much this movie is about his father because of how much television is featured throughout it. Not just oh, yeah. the, the Jimmy Gator character and, and the uh, Earl Parcher's character, but just how many characters have a TV on yeah. and, 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 and that sort of daytime, late morning, early afternoon television that was such a part of, of my, my growing up. Um, and so it just, it, it feels almost like it, it sort of feels like a, a time capsule that way. Um, that, that feels really special. And so, so there's just so many different things you can focus on with, with all of these. And, and so it's kind of enjoyable to come back to it afresh sometimes and just let it wash over you and go, well, what am I going to, what's going to jump out at me this time? Um, but I'll say that, that ending, I mean, I, I pretty much, I sometimes I'm going into it, I'm like, all right, I'm probably not going to cry this time. I know exactly what's coming. It, yeah. But, but there is something about that emotion and, and that sort of uh, redemptive moment that, that is so powerful to me that I just, it just gets me. Um, yeah. It's, uh, my, I remember um, I saw Magnolia in, in Springfield at the time, there really was no like art theater, but the Springfield A, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, would occasionally like that's where I saw Time Code. Like that's it, oh, that yeah, would that yeah. that's right, yeah. Uh, like they would be the ones that would occasionally get sort of these art films. So I saw Magnolia there, and I remember uh, I think I saw it with uh, uh, our friend uh, Matt Bennett. And there were not many people in the theater, but there were like a couple guys, like a few rows up and they weren't talking throughout, but they said a couple things here and there to each other. Um, and it really bothered me. And at one point I was, I was literally going to say, Hey, I was, I had it all planned out in my mind. I was going to say, <laughs> Hey man, we don't need your commentary. We all, we, uh, this makes, this makes perfect sense without, that was it. This makes perfect sense without your commentary. And I was seconds away from saying that and then the frogs happened and it's like i probably shouldn't say this makes sense um <laughs> you know uh but you know what admittedly the guys shut up when the frogs fell uh how could you how could it not happen that way yeah. um so let, yeah let it's me talk briefly about this you know again this is not like uh we don't need to like go through and like prove why these are these are worthy. These are just, sure. these are the movies that speak to me, but um, I do definitely have a chip on my shoulder for people who are sort of, uh, I guess, 21st century Paul Thomas Anderson 
fans oh. and less less 20th century. It really bothers me. And, um, you know, I can't remember the, the author, but the, the new Paul Thomas Anderson masterworks. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'll, I'm almost all the way through it. I've got Phantom, the Phantom Thread chapter left, but it's kind of pissing me off. I'm getting a little bit sick of this, um, of this sense that he emerged with There Will Be Blood and that he was just kind of, it, it, I, I don't know where this is coming from. He has been so acclaimed throughout. These movies were beloved at the time by critics. It's not like, I, I don't know. I guess there's just maybe this sort of like, I don't know, 21st century Monday morning quarterbacking or something of like, oh, well, he kind of, those were kind of more, you can see the influences or, or whatever. I, I don't care. I couldn't yeah. possibly, if you say, oh, well, this is just his, his shortcuts. This is his ode to Altman. Yeah. I, I mean, you can, you can say that. You can see the, the references to Scorsese and Altman all throughout um, Boogie Nights as well. But he is such a visceral filmmaker. And for my money, you know, I, I'm kind of yearning for him to go back to a little bit of this. I love yeah. the, the, the energetic camera. I love the just fast pace and just sort of emotional rawness that these movies have. Um, I, I think he can, I don't know. I don't know if I think he overthinks things or I, I still pretty much love every movie of his that comes out on some level, even movies I don't totally really respond to like Inherent Vice. I'm like, yeah, but it's got like six or seven incredible scenes. And yeah. Know, that's that's a, that's that's pretty good for a, what I consider a misfire. Um, yeah, I've I've definitely heard that thing, uh, and I, and I honestly I think David for a while said that he wasn't a huge fan. I think he liked Boogie Nights. Uh, now that I think about it, um, but he really did not care for Magnolia for a while. And I think he said that like there will be blood like really got his attention. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but it's just like, but other people very readily said, it's like, there's a lot of John Houston in there will be blood. There's a lot of treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, so it's like, so you could either say like, well, he just pivoted to a different filmmaker or you can look at every director who has a love of film and you can probably pinpoint their, their influences because like as someone who loves Altman and loves his big cast movies, you know, I adore Nashville. Obviously I like shortcuts and Magnolia. You can see the influence, but it feels so different. It's yeah. totally so different. Even before the one could say supernatural stuff happens, um, yeah. not that I think it's that, but like this this sort of outside of reality stuff happens. Like it just the tone of it feels different. It doesn't feel like shortcuts. Like it's it's even somebody who, like a, like a Brian De Palma who who very actively references Hitchcock in a way yeah. that is undeniable, and people could even say he's ripping them off. He's still doing his own. He's putting his own spin on yeah. it. And so it's so, it's just so, I, I, the more I think about it, the more I go back to this wonderful line from Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, when, uh, the Ricky Roma character is talking about like, it's like, oh, you think this, okay, fine. But then what? It's like, oh yes. Okay. Yeah. So he, 
He has his Scorsese movie. He has his Altman movie. Okay, but then what? Does does he stop there? Of course he doesn't. But it would appear you are willing to stop there to say, ah, I've identified his influence. And so really what more is there to say? Yeah. And of course, there's so much more to say, especially with a film like Magnolia, but, but any of them, honestly. So uh, I have run across a little bit of that feeling of like, oh, he came into, he, he took this five-year break and then came into his own. And it's like, no, he was, he was doing pretty astonishing work um, yeah. well before his, his whole career. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I had to get, I had to get that off my chest. I appreciate um, that. Yes. So I think, I mean, why don't we, you know, we could, we could bring in your top 10. Sure. Could, um, I am curious. And now you, we, before we started recording, we looked back at like uh, our older top tens. Um, yeah. And I believe the oldest one that you found was from 2007. Correct. Okay. Now, when I met you, and this is not a, a dig on you, when I met you, I believe your favorite movie was Scream, yes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm a big fan of Scream. Uh, and then uh, then I think once you started getting into movies, uh, I think both Matrix and American Beauty, both 99 movies, um, yep. were, were, were duking it out for number one. Yeah. Um, is that correct? That it, it is, yeah. I mean you know it's hey it's the 99 factor maybe. sure um but but yeah i mean if you know you and i saw american beauty together i think it was like your fourth time seeing it but yeah i saw but it's you, looking at my oldest top 100 which is from 2001 american beauty is number 39 yeah yeah i mean it was it has certainly gone down in estimation as the years have gone on um but i, I rewatched it a couple years ago and it's still it still has a lot going for it. It's um, gorgeous, if nothing else. It, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of the performances really hold up. Some of the storytelling doesn't hold up. Some, you know, um, but, it, but it's got a lot going for it. But, it, but as, as with many people, it really grabbed me. That, the, that idea of, you know, sort of the, the curdled American dream. Um, and you know it was you know it was extremely influence, uh, influential on like the first scripts that I wrote. Basically, everything yeah, had to be had. had I know you you got to suffer through them. Now, do you remember a one act play that I wrote that was basically like, yeah? Do you, do you have any memory of what I'm talking about? Uh, I can't remember the title. It was probably I was like. Uh, I don't think, I think it, it was something like living alone together or something like that, you know, anyway. I don't remember it. I remember everything is wonderful. Uh, oh, your, yeah, your yeah, screenplay yeah. that is, was very directly influenced by American oh. beauty. Oh yeah. It, it's all about, you know, ki you know, that the adults don't understand and they're jaded and they have to break out of their, their conformity and all that. Um, not every good, but not everybody could write a hard-hitting political uh, corruption screenplay like I did when I was sixteen. <laughs> My introduction to that script was I walked out into uh, like the theater lobby during a rehearsal, and you were sitting there either going over it with somebody else or just like writing it. 
Um, and I yeah, was like, I was oh, working really hard on that thing. Yeah, yeah. I stand by the title, though. The Model Citizen was a pretty good title. That is a good That's title. That's probably about it. Um, but, but yeah, you know, it everything needed to be American Beauty after yeah. that, which is probably why it was number one versus The Matrix. The Matrix sure. was very much its own thing. Talk, I, for me, The Matrix really holds up. It really does. Yeah. It, it regularly, it regularly works its way like into my own top hundred. I think I really, I kind of love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, now real- so yeah, those, those were there, um, you know, for a long time, Saving Private Ryan was there. It's a, sure. a, a lot, a lot of these movies I can identify as sort of those, a lot of the gateway drugs, basically Pulp Fiction was on there for a long time. Um, Shawshank Redemption was on there. LA Confidential was on there. Um, you know, Fargo is still very high. Um, Memento was was extremely high on on a lot of these early lists. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so so Pulp Fiction kind of got worked out of. I, I adore it. It's it's my favorite Tarantino still. Um, but it was that thing I was mentioning earlier of oh I, I don't I don't have to have a representative a, a Tarantino spot on my top ten. You know it was. There, there was kind of that feeling, I think, as especially as I was trying to start becoming a filmmaker, I thought, well, yeah. I've got to I've got to have my filmmakers as my top 10. And that's just, yeah. you know, that's just dumb. And I um, think there is there is that pressure, especially as you get older um, and you you sort of realize what film can be. And one of the things that can be is not American. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I do think that there's there is pressure to was like, well, I got to incorporate at least a, a couple of foreign films uh, <laughs> in my top 10. Like what uh, people are going to think I'm some uh, dumb redneck who happens to love, <laughs> you know, right. David Lean. Um, but uh, as rednecks tend to. Um, but uh, I definitely know that that's something that I that I have struggled with and maybe continue to struggle with. Like in my own my my current top 10, I have two uh, foreign films and I, I, I love them very much. Like I didn't, I didn't put them on, they're not, uh, they're not like these token, uh, uh, inclusions, but, uh, yeah, better. But yeah. So you go ahead and say yours, cause I was going to say, Oh, well, what are they? But why don't you okay. just say your, your top 10. And then My current your- top 10 yeah. is starting from 10 Lawrence of Arabia, 12 angry men, Verkmeister harmonies, alien, the best years of our lives, the Night of the Hunter, Bicycle Thieves, Jaws, Citizen Kane, and Nashville. Great list. I th- I think so. Um, but yeah, in the spirit of of this conversation, looking for commonalities, uh, and then the idea of like, what could this possibly say about me as a person, uh, much less a film fan? Um, looking at these i definitely am like okay there's a real a real focus on the fallenness of the world uh-huh. and the the brokenness of relationships but yeah. there tends to be even in even in the films with sort of a a darker ending like kane there is an assu- at least an assumption of the importance of relationships and the importance of vulnerability and the importance of hope like yeah. if you look at like 12 Angry Men, Best Years of Our Lives, Night of the Hunter, Bicycle Thieves, even Nashville, uh, the idea is like, yes, this is a deeply flawed world and one that 
can really hurt you, but it's not without its hope. And yeah. so like, just looking at, again, I was thinking about these while I was walking my, uh, my kids around the block for the hundredth time. And I was just like, Oh yeah, I guess there's, and I think that is, that is very much me. I think there's a certain cynicism to me as a person, but I also feel like there's a, a, a certain sentimentality as well. And, and a desire for, for hope. Yeah. Now see if the, the thing that, immediately jumps out to me about those is a couple examples, um, including our shared movie, Night of the Hunter, um, of the frailty of fathers. Yeah, that's, boy, yeah, that's probably about right. Um, Even Jaws, there's that great dinner table scene. Yeah. Um, But, but, uh, you know, Bicycle Thieves and and Night of the Hunter, just these. 12 Angry Men. There's a big one there with Lee J. Cobb. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of, yeah, that jumped out to me immediately. Oh yeah. You mean to say that a Spielberg movie has some father issues? I know <laughs> it's surprising. We're all Spielberg, surprised I know. It. It's the only time, the only time you did it. Yeah. Um, I do incidentally, I have my, my top 10 from 2001 in front of me as well. And here's the thing, looking at this top hundred, Again, I stand by a lot of these. A lot of these are genuinely great movies, yeah. but I think my reason for liking them is just so different than what I look for in movies now. Like looking at my top 10 from 2001, there's a lot of noir and there's a lot of crime movies. Yeah. And again, I think there is a novelty to that to me at the time. So my top 10 from 2001, Maltese Falcon, LA Confidential, Network, Dr. Strange. That's not, that's not in order, right? That's is 10 that to 1. Oh, yeah. okay. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Keep, uh, start again. Start again. Yeah. Maltese Falcon, LA Confidential, Network, Dr. Strangelove, Falling Down, Chinatown, The Usual Suspects, 12 Angry Men, Jaws, and Citizen Kane. So three of them have stayed there. Um, but uh, yeah, like these are very like a 19 year old male movie fan put yeah. this together oh falling down and the usual suspects you don't say <laughs> you know I, you know i have heard, before we started recording i had mentioned i remember the the days of la confidential chinatown and usual suspects i had forgotten about falling down that yeah. one always stuck out like i mean I, it's a very good movie mm-hmm. defense uh <laughs> But, but, uh, but I, I, I had forgotten that one. Yeah. And, yeah. and listener, obviously, I mean, I guess if, if there's new listeners, Tyler and I go back over 20 years. So, yeah. you know, we were, I think you showed me, yeah, the, the very first night we hung out, um, we watched usual, I can't remember the order. I think we watched usual suspects first and then we watched scream. Um, that's so right kinda, we watched one yeah. of yours and one of mine that's right because yeah. i think yeah, i yeah. i don't think i had seen scream you at had that point because yes i remember you uh going like assuming that oh of course they think it's the boyfriend of course that's such a you know classic yeah. red hair and i just remember that being like yeah you think you understand scream you don't get it <laughs> Kevin Williamson is operating on a whole other level. I know he That's only right. I, I know he only wrote it, but um, yeah. So I am I am curious to because we we've talked a little bit. We've certainly found commonalities in your current top ten. Um, do you feel like 
do you feel like the, obviously these are movies that resonate with you. So then the question is why, why do these movies resonate with you? Do you feel like they speak to something within you? Like, do you think someone could look at your top 10 and feel like they have a certain sense of you as a person? Or do you feel like maybe that's, that's a little bit too glib? Um, I mean, so I think I had, or you were on this for, for my birthday, my wife set up a zoom call mm-hmm. and she did like this, like trivia of me. And it was like a bunch of close friends. And she like asked, what's my second favorite movie? And only you knew it because yeah. I think we had had a conversation about it. So it's like, you know, it, and when, when I watched it, when I showed her night of the hunter, um, she was, you know, after Magnolia, it's not really a straight, it's not an obvious straight line to Night of the no. Hunter. So, no. you know, I think it's hard to sort of draw a straight line sort of, oh, this connects to this part of who I am, this, you know, for, for people out, for people on the outside, probably, probably especially something like Metropolis. Um, sure. I don't think, I don't like, think I realized that how much you like Metropolis. And I was just about to say the same thing about Dirk Meister Harmonies for, for mm. you. Yeah, uh, you know, I I know you've talked about it, but and and I know, uh, or it's kind of the same with Lawrence of Arabia. I know those are those are kind of the two that I appreciate of yours, but they don't they don't quite grab me emotionally. Whereas there is something about the vision in Metropolis that just it just feels like just wow. I'm just like I'm a kid, and I just want to look at this forever. Um, and uh, some of the sequences, especially for the time, I'm like that flood. Oh yeah. my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. It's, yeah. Um, and and yeah, that's that's uh, the exact thing that I love about Werkmeister Harmonies. It's it just such a command of tone and such beautiful visuals. And yes, obviously, extremely meditative. Um, I couldn't really tell you what Werkmeister Harmonies is about, um, except you know a certain exploration about like the the darkness of of humanity and society. But again, this idea that there's more to it. There's that wonderful extended sequence. I guess you could say that about any any moment of the film, but um, where people are like storming the hospital and just destroying everything they find. And then they encounter an old man naked standing in a bathtub and that, that vulnerability, that raw humanity, like shames them into very quietly just leaving. Like the riot is over because they've been faced with this thing that like, he has no way of defending himself. He doesn't even have clothes on. And just seeing that uh, sort of restored in them, this sense of actual humanity and like moments like that in the midst of, again, this, this visually gorgeous film, but moments like that, like you can really point to a very, that specific moment and be like, yes, that is a, a concept that resonates with me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably people who know us both can probably look at our lists and go, yeah, this, this, this feels like Tyler. Or this feels like Jason. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I certainly think so. And, you know, uh, even Jaws, the kind of like the absurdity of bureaucracy. Oh, sure. Of, of what's in the actual interest of people. Um, I know that that, hey, that goes right back to that first screenplay. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Oh boy. Um, 
Yeah, so... Uh, so I would I, like to do a reading of that one-act play of mine. Oh, and boy. a reading of Tyler's of the Model Citizen. And here we go. I'll be the, you know what? It's... the stage directions. <laughs> I'll do all the parts um, <laughs> in varying accents. Uh, yeah, well, and that's, of course... We could go back to my my uh, brief stint as a writer of short stories uh, in sixth and seventh grade, and we could go back to Sasquatch, the sixty-page opus uh, of uh, various uh, uh, Bigfoot and Yeti just just destroying people. Um, literally, I like. I, I read Jurassic Park right up until Nedry's death, and I was like, I found my inspiration. Uh, this constant disemboweling and ripping people apart—that's that's what we're gonna do with Sasquatch, and it's uh, yeah. it's really really something. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so uh, it it is interesting in talking. Like you said, it's tremendously personal, but I also feel like there's a tendency. I know that I I mean I I like to read in, into things, but I try not to be overly reductive because. While it is personal, it is not so personal that a, a person's top 10 could tell you everything about them. It's something I've never right. liked. Um, you know, as, as much as I adore Siskel and Ebert, there was a tendency, especially when talking about like slasher movies of the of the 80s, there was a tendency to not merely cast aspersions on the filmmakers, but also the possible fans of these movies. You know, uh, I remember, yeah. I enjoy the way this is phrased, but I think Siskel once said, it's like, who is this movie for and would you want to sit next to them in a theater? And I, I enjoy the phrasing of that, but it's one of those things like, who, you know what? Who knows? Like at this point, like even if it's a movie that I don't like and even, even it's a movie that I could argue is objectively bad, whatever that even means, uh, I, I've stopped saying like, well, clearly, you know, this, this uh, if somebody likes this movie, it speaks volumes about who they are. And I feel like I wouldn't want to yeah. let them near my kids or whatever. Uh, yeah. I feel like that's a little bit too reductive and simplistic, but, but it, it is, yeah. there is a personal quality. And undoubtedly it's like looking at my movies, like, Oh yeah. Uh, a broken world, but there's still a glimmer of hope. Gosh, do you think maybe I'm a Christian? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think yeah. that that probably directly or indirectly has a huge impact on like the movies that resonate with me. Sure. Um, so, but I also think that you can't just say that that's all I'm about as a movie watcher. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, so, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else to, to cover as regard in regards to your, um, to your top 10. I'm sorry that we talk so much about mine, but I do think it's always oh, interesting to compare. Yeah. Um, um, I think we've, you know, I'm, I was trying to think of with just about all of these, I think of the director first, hmm. maybe the one exception would, well, I, I mean, maybe people think of Tolkien when they think of Lord of the Rings first, which is sure. certainly understandable. Um, but maybe network all, all due respect to Sidney Lamette. Maybe I think of Patty Chayefsky first. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I mean, like there was a time when both 12 Angry Men and Network were in my top 10. And while technically this the work of the same director, and I don't mean to take anything away from Sidney Lumet, like I think that there he was a wonderful actor's director, obviously, and he was yeah. not opposed to using the camera 
to to heighten things. But I definitely think, you know, people many years ago when David and I did an episode about uh, journeyman directors, uh, people gave us a lot of shit about that. But I do think that there is such a thing as a journeyman director, somebody who is so committed to the material that they are willing to adapt their style. And I think Sidney Lumet, aside from like really great monologues and an amazing, uh, amazing performances, I don't think you could... I don't think you would immediately know it's the same director that made Network and 12 Angry Men and Murder on the Orient Express and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and any of these other films that he made and The Pawn Broker. Um, But yeah, I I know what you mean. And also like, oddly enough, I feel terrible about this, but like The Third Man, I've seen a handful of Carol Reed movies. He's a very competent director. Orson Welles did not direct The Third Man, but he's the first one I think of. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen one other Carol Reed movie and... You know, it was it was fine, but there there is something about Wells' involvement. Yeah, yeah. But but I have to give Carol Reed all the credit. I mentioned final shots earlier. Sure. I mean that is just. It's so elegant. It's a bit harsh. Uh, it's just it's just perfect, and it's a lovely little callback. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I do I do definitely. Uh, I talked about sort of like grandiose qualities and um, you know, this speaks to something that as people who came from the theater, I think we're, you know, we're, we love a good monologue. Sure. Um, And sometimes I've had to really get away from that, especially in, in my own writing, because you go like every scene doesn't need to be five pages long. We don't need to start with this big exposition of what has happened off screen. And, you know, that's all theater. Um, But I do still love, great monologues and 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 there's a lot of them in my top 10 i think of anton walbrook in in life and death of colonel blimp oh yeah there's there's even a bunch in lord of the rings there's some in in kane i actually i don't really know that you know uh wes anderson is not really a monologue guy he isn't which i find interesting it it is yeah that that movie was in instructive um like probably my favorite moment in the movie is that little scene between Royal and, and Ethel when he talks about, you know, we got to get out there and, and brew some recklessness into him. And she says, I think that's terrible. <laughs> and, he, yeah. and he just goes, no, you don't. And yeah. it's just like, and there's a marriage right there in, yeah. in three lines of dialogue. And I'm like, I, I feel, I feel like he is so fleet. You know, anybody else, that movie would have been two hours and 45 minutes. He manages to bring it in under two hours because yeah. he can just, he just cuts to the core and he can just move. But yeah. I but, feel like so, few, so, few people know how to use narration the way he does in that movie. I think it's, oh, yeah. it works so well. Yeah. Yeah. Now he's, he's command of tone certainly i mean but these are all you know these are not unique to my top 10 it's just i'm just trying i'm I'm trying to sort of think globally about what is it that i that i look for you know i don't really i think you could say about me i i do like a lot of classic direction i love camera movement Mm -hmm. um i yeah i i don't sort of like a a wandering or or aimless camera or something that's like oh it just sort of captured what was there i'm like no i want it i want curation i want um i want more focus than that but but that's again that's that's like 
I don't think anybody looks at these 10 movies and goes, you know what I think Jason thinks about directing? I bet it's something like, but that's just something that I'm trying to pull out, I suppose. Certainly with a lot of these movies in your top 10, again, from a stylistic standpoint, I feel like people would not be surprised that you came out of the theater. From an art direction standpoint, Metropolis, Tenenbaums, Kane, Third Man, Lord of the Rings, and Night of the Hunter all have such a such a, a beautiful, f- full cluttered frame. You know, yeah. that's something that I always associate with Wells. But you get that with Night of the Hunter. Like these are very, of course, every movie is very specifically designed. Not every movie is meant to be, uh, you know, this expressionist nightmare or anything like that. But looking at these you definitely see uh a lot of care and effort and a lot of um heightened thought went into the the art direction um and so yeah you can definitely see i mean some of the sets in some of the sequences in night of the hunter are basically just like flats you know uh that could easily have been on stage um so yeah, it's I, I could definitely see uh, commonality there as well. Um, yeah. One one fun note about Night of the Hunter. Um, so of course, you know the song "Leaning on the Everlasting Arms." Yeah. Um, you know, seeing you see that movie and you're like, I never want to hear that song ever again. Yeah. But then the more I watch it, once um, I always forget her name, but once once sort of the matriarch comes in. Oh yeah, Lillian Gish. And, Lillian Gish and she sings it then you're like oh this has a kind of a this is more can be more beautiful and less ominous and then um you know the Coen brothers used it in True Grit and Mm -hmm. really since re-watching that movie uh somewhat recently um it had just been sticking in my head and so now it is uh, I have a three-year-old uh I don't know if the listeners know that but um, one of the few songs that he liked me to sing at nighttime is leaning on the everlasting arms. And so it just, I just sort of lull him to sleep. And then I talk about, you know, the, the battle of, uh, love and hate. Do you sing it in the Mitchum style? Like really yeah. drawing it out and doing yeah. it as deep as possible? Yeah. Uh, no, not as deep as possible, but it's sort of like, leaning. Yeah. Lean. See, it can be really beautiful, and oh, sure. I I often feel a bit calmed after singing it, but yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of the things that I that I do love about from a from a, a spiritual standpoint. One of the things that I love about Night of the Hunter is that like Harry Powell is not like disguising himself as a preacher so that he can get close. He really does seem to think that God is on his side and is informing his, like that's, that makes things so much, it would have been so much easier if he was just a criminal who's like, Oh, I will look respectable if I uh, portray myself this way. No, this is a, this is a true believer in his own way. Uh, And that's what makes him so terrifying. But uh, yeah, man, what a wonderful film. Um, Uh, as 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 all of the films in your in your top ten are, uh, and I, I increasingly, and I, this is something that I that I said about uh, the the book. Um, but anytime David and I do like our top ten of the year or whatever it is, I say like, okay, if you look at his top ten and my top ten, and there's usually like three or four movies of overlap, so it's like, all right, so you've got about 16, 17 movies. If you watch these, you'll probably get a pretty good 
you'll certainly get a good portrait of the year and what it could be. But when talking about like a top 10 in general, um, and over on, on the Patreon, David and I have done a, a series where we take our individual top hundreds and we'll pick like a section of five and he'll talk about his, I'll talk about mine. And increasingly, I feel like if you were to take our collective top hundreds, uh, you'd probably get a pretty nice little education in film, like both history and aesthetics, not yeah. to mention genre and probably uh, authorship. Yeah. And and so I definitely think like if somebody were to watch your top 10, you'd get a nice blend of very mainstream sensibilities like Lord of the Rings and stuff that's old, you know older and silent in the case of Metropolis, but also stuff that can be much more intimate uh, and some stuff that is very overtly philosophical, like I think Magnolia is, um, and stuff that's that would seem to be straightforward, but there's a lot going on, like The Third Man. So uh, that's something I always like to think, not, not purely from a, a personal standpoint, but maybe an educational standpoint, that like if somebody were to watch all of your 10 movies, they would... Uh, they would benefit greatly as a film watcher um, mm. from those. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think that's, uh, so I think that's a great place to end. Sure, uh, listener, feel free to weigh in in the comments with maybe your own uh, top ten and and what you feel like uh, you know certain commonalities you've noticed. Uh, maybe in talking about my top ten or 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 Jason's, maybe there are some common things that we didn't point out that you noticed, um, but. Uh, <laughs> the idea is someone's like, it's like, you know, Tyler, all the characters in your top 10 are gay. Did you know that? It's like, what? <laughs> I didn't. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So in the meantime, they all uh, hate their offspring. Uh, interesting. Huh? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, now I that you mention one, it. Yes. <laughs> uh, one final note is okay. maybe, maybe the whole point of making a top 10 list is to give ourselves a framework for a really good discussion. Like it gets us talking about 10 different movies. You've got 10, I've got 10. We've, there's so much overlap and so many things we could talk about. And it gives film lovers a, a way to sort of organize conversation around yeah. things that are important to them. Yeah, I think the... I think the, the last thing that a conversation like this should be is definitive. Even though I have yeah. my top 10 in place, it's always changing. And so it's it would be dumb for me to even defend it as it is. Um, I can defend them as like, these are movies that really work for me. And that's basically yeah. it. Uh, yeah. You know, it's if somebody were to say like, of course I say that, but the minute somebody says, oh, you know what? Grown Ups 2 is my favorite movie of all times. Like, all right. This is going to be tough for me. Everything I just said about definitive and something being personal, that's out the window now. Um, but uh, thankfully, hopefully, I don't have to worry about that. Um, but yeah, so feel free to weigh in in the comments. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, in the meantime, do check out uh, the 101 best movies of the 2010s. Uh, Jason, where can people find you and your work online? Well, you can actually uh, see some of my work at jasoneacon.com. Uh, that's where you can see uh, a couple of short films and just some other work that I'm doing, a couple of things I've written. Um, and then I'm, I'm on Instagram and I'm on uh, Twitter. All right. So uh, thank you. Oh, and then of course, yes, you can, you can uh, find me Tyler at battleship You can, uh, uh, 
email David, David at battleshipretention.com. He always does the, the rundown and he has everything memorized and I don't remember everything, but uh, you can follow us both on Twitter uh, and you can check me out over at More Than One Lesson. Uh, the most recent episode of More Than One Lesson features uh, an interview with two uh, legendary voice actors, uh, Katie Lee and Will Ryan, who if you look at their uh, IMDb's, you'll just like, oh, okay. Like, like any voice actors, like, oh, they've been in a million things that I know about, but didn't know who they were specifically. But uh, it was a fun conversation with them. So you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. But uh, in the meantime, thank you everybody for listening. Jason, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye.